So this morning we continue our series, uh, Refresh, uh, Realizing and, and Refreshing Our Realization of Who Jesus Is. And if you remember last week we began, it's the season of Epiphany. It's the Latin word for realization. It's the season where we again realize who Jesus is and we come back to the Gospels uh, this time or this season of the church year to remember who Jesus is, to focus on the stories, on the things that he did, the way that he ministered to people, the way that he spoke about himself to realize again who he is. We talked about it last week as Jesus was baptized and the words that, that the Lord spoke from heaven, this is my son whom I love and him I'm so pleased. And we heard the echoes of Psalm 2 and of Isaiah and that Jesus is our kind of king, this servant king who comes and wasn't coming through power but through actually through sacrifice that he saved us. Well, this morning we take the next step. We show up with Jesus as he comes to a synagogue in Nazareth and he begins to teach I have to tell you, reading this passage this week, I have been challenged. I mean, first of all, I love this passage. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I don't know how to put it into words, but I hear these words of Jesus and I begin to think about the implications of what it means. I begin to think about not only the implications of my life, but in our world. It makes me want to follow him more faithfully. It makes me want to go further in mission. It makes me want to serve others, especially the least and the lost of our community. This, this passage is, is one of my favorites. But it's interesting because I realize that I often only read up to the part where Jesus says, it has been this, this things that I've spoken or the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I usually stop there. But actually the, this passage continues on and it, talks and it comes to the second part of the passage where the people around him, the people of the synagogue are excited about Jesus. They're marveling at what he says. All their eyes were fixed on him. And then things go horribly wrong. And they ask, is this Joseph's son? And then Jesus begins to understand what they're asking, begins to understand what they're thinking. And it ends up with them wanting to take Jesus out and throw him off a cliff. And I start wondering, it's troubling for me, like what went wrong here? I mean, this is, how did they get it so wrong? I mean, Jesus is saying amazing things to people who, if you say the word Messiah, or actually if you say the word Mashiach, I mean, all sorts of bells start going off and it ends up with them wanting to kill him. And I start wondering, how did they misunderstand so badly? And it starts getting me to ask the questions, are there ways that I still misunderstand who Jesus is? And I start thinking, do some of you have, or wrestle with that question? Do some of you ask the Lord or the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me to see my blind spots. Help me see the places where I misunderstand who you are, Lord Jesus. I mean, think about this just for a minute. Here we have Jesus. He's, um, we know that he's the Son of God. We know that he is the Messiah and he's this powerful man. And even the people at that synagogue, they knew that Jesus had been in Capernaum, that he had been doing amazing things. And they ask, and that's part of it, they ask him to do some of these amazing things in Nazareth. They know that he's doing these amazing things and he says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim or to preach good news to the poor. And these are Messiah, or these are Messiah words. These are things that a Messiah says. And then he ends up all of it by saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then it goes off the rails. And rather than celebrating and rejoicing and praising God and following Jesus faithfully, they take him to a cliff to try to throw him off. I wonder if you have these same questions. If you wonder, Lord, how do I misunderstand you? Or do you read this text and wonder, Lord, how do I make sure that I don't make the same mistake the people of that synagogue did? Did any of you ever wrestle with that question? 
Well, let's do this. Let's read the scripture today. If you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4, for those of you who um, would like to just use the bulletin, there's also on the back of the bulletin, there's the passage there as well. So, if you would read it with me. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah did not sent, was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there... Were many in Israel with leprosy, and there were many in Israel, Israel with leprosy, in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed; only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to to the uh, brow of the hill on which he was, which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So first of all, as I hear this passage, I think I first thing is the first part of the passage where Jesus is preaching about who he is. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day when all the faithful of his town, of his hometown, are gathered together to hear the word of God, to hear teaching, to praise God. And he opens up the, the scroll to the words that Isaiah spoke. And he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this is an important part of Isaiah. It's, um, it doesn't actually say the word servant in the words, but many of it, many uh, scholars, many biblical um, scholars connect it with the servant songs of Isaiah because he's talking about the spirit of the Lord. He's talking about being anointed. These are all important things. You know, and we here, we live in the time when having the spirit upon us is part of something of being a Christian. But in that time, having the spirit of the Lord upon you was something special and often signaled something that was set apart by God. Now, it's not to say that there weren't numerous people who had the Spirit of the Lord upon them, I and mean, the Spirit came upon Mary, upon Elizabeth, upon John uh, the Baptist, but here's something special, in that the Spirit of the Lord was a prerequisite for the Messiah, for the Anointed One who would come, who would accomplish God's work. So the, Messiah, or sorry, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. But also, too, is that he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. Now, it's interesting because in Greek, this word anointed is actually uh, krio, from which we get the word Christ. Christ means anointed, the anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, or the anointed one. 
Anointing was when oil was uh, either poured or, or put on a person's head. And it was a way of marking them out for a specific task, for something special that God desired for them to do. So for someone to be anointed was, is a, was a demonstration that God had chosen them for a specific task. So the Holy Spirit is on Jesus, has empowered Jesus, but also, too, the, uh, the Lord has anointed him. He has been anointed to do what God had set for him. And it says he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, it's interesting. I've, normally, I'm pretty encouraged, and I think it's important for us to hear Jesus' ministry to the poor. But as I was reading this passage, and, and also others who's been studying it as well, is that the word for poor here is, is uh, takos, which is Greek. And it's um, trying to get at this idea of not just people who were economically poor, but people who had been run over by life and left for dead. People who had their hearts broken. And so it's bigger than just people who have difficulty making ends meet, though that does really make life difficult. But in Jesus' day, it included a broad spectrum of people. People who were living, who were struggling just to make ends meet, who were barely scraping by, which was most of the population of his day. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to this broad category of people. Not just people who had trouble with money, but people who had all sorts of brokenness, who had been, and to use my words, run over by life and left for dead. So Jesus has come to proclaim good news to them. But then he keeps going, and he says, He has anointed me, or um, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. So release, sight, release. And it's interesting because Jesus here in, in, in Luke's gospel, it looks like Jesus is quoting some from Isaiah 61, which is most of the passage, and some from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Kind of putting these two passages together, even though he's reading from one scroll of Isaiah. And some have questioned, you know, did Jesus make a mistake here? Did he misquote? Was he reading a, a faulty scroll? Or did Luke get it wrong when he wrote it down? I, for one, believe that Jesus, first of all, is the Son of God. And so I would believe, I, I don't think he made a mistake it was based on that assumption. I also believe that the scripture is the word of God, that the Holy Spirit was involved in its writing. And so I believe that the scriptures are true. And so based on those two beliefs, I think actually Jesus is doing something purposefully here. That when he mixes Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, he's making a point. And I don't want to get into the details too much of what parts that he leave out in one sentence, but also what he included, but... But I think it's important for us to see that Jesus is putting words together here to help us see who he is. If you want to look at your um, bulletin, the part where it says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners, that comes from Isaiah 61. And recovery of, the sight to the, uh, recovery of sight for the blind, that's Isaiah 61. But when he says to release the oppressed, that comes from Isaiah 58. And to proclaim the uh, favorable year of the Lord goes back to Isaiah 61. So it's kind of back and forth between the two. And it's important to realize what Jesus is facing when he's uh, talking to this group in this synagogue, to this congregation. You see, the people of Israel, they had been living in occupied territory. Even though they were in their homeland, they were at that point occupied by the Romans. 
and for centuries they had been working through this. I mean, for uh, century, 500 years before that, they were sent into exile to Babylon. And then the Lord brought them back. And then the Persians took over. And then the Greeks took over. And then they had a short period of time where the Hasmoneans, the, the Jewish leaders, uh, after the Maccabean revolt, the, revolt like they, had, uh, they took over and, and Israel was its own country again. But then the Romans came and they took over again. And so you have the people of God living in their own land, but living like slaves in their own land. I don't know if you've seen any movies uh, like The Passion or The Nativity, um, even the new movie Risen. Um, you get a sense of what it's like to be, to be in this occupied land. I mean, most people were peasants and there was huge taxes. Roman soldiers were not kind and courteous. They were horrible. And they took advantage of their power. And constantly their, their leaders were co-opted by Romans and all sorts of corruption happened. Their, their own people were turned into tax collectors and a, the way you make money as a tax collector is anything you can get in above, uh, over and above the taxes you normally charge, that's yours to keep. So there's huge incentive to, to abuse that power. So people were miserable. Even though they were on their own land, it was like they had not returned from exile yet. It was like they were still living in a foreign land even though they were in their homeland. And so when you have Jesus begin reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Bells start going off. The people get excited. They start hearing this good news, these prophetic words that were spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You can almost feel, you can almost touch the excitement. But what's interesting for me is, like I said, is that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61. He says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. Now, it's unfortunate. In the English translation, when it says, He sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and release for the oppressed, the two verbs there are freedom and release, or the two nouns there, freedom and release. But actually in Greek, they're the same word. Uh, aphase, or aphasis, in which um, is this word that a few times means release, but throughout most of the New Testament, it means forgiveness. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, uh, forgive me my debts, it's actually a aphase. It's the same word. And we say, we translate that as forgive. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus inserts this part from Isaiah 58 into his reading, and it includes the word forgiveness. So he puts it there on purpose, and you get this double reading of forgiveness in Isaiah, or sorry, in, in, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is reading this to the, to the congregation. I believe he did it on purpose. You see, the thing is, the people were, hundreds of years before, the people were sent into exile as consequence of their sinfulness of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, their God. So part of the consequences of that was going into exile. And then God, in his mercy, brings them back. And since then, they had one, uh, they had the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, just one uh, empire after another taking over. And if you read Isaiah, the prophet, as he's speaking about God's redemption, he's realizing that people don't just need a political savior. They need a spiritual savior as well. And I think Jesus puts Isaiah 58 in here. 
this double reference to forgiveness on purpose to show the kind of king that he is. Last week we talked about Jesus and we heard the words from the Lord God and in Psalm uh, 2 and uh, Isaiah and it's talking about Jesus as this great king but also this servant. Well, this week we have still the same message of Jesus as the king, the Messiah, but it's put together with the word Savior. That Jesus has come to bring salvation for us. And I want to be careful that we don't over-spiritualize this because there is a real message here where Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. And even though I said this is a broad category of poor, I think it also applies to those who lack financial abilities, who lack funds, who struggle just to pay their bills. I think Jesus has come to proclaim good news for them. And, the, and to set prisoners free and oppressed free. But also I think he's speaking to those of us who are prisoners to sin. Sin that still continues to hold us down. I think he's speaking to those of us who are still oppressed by sin. He has come to bring release. He has come to bring forgiveness for us. That Jesus is this Messiah who is King and Savior together. So this is just the first part of of this passage and we start to see that one, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that Jesus has been anointed to proclaim good news to all those who have been run over by life and left for dead. We see that he is sent to proclaim good news, to um, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. And that all this has been fulfilled in, in that day when he read that scripture. Are you with me? Pretty good so far, right? Amazing stuff. And we even kind of, uh, it doesn't, the same bells don't go off for us because it's hard for us to relate to what it was like in that first century, in that uh, synagogue congregation as they are praying every day for the Messiah. And here he is, he shows up. And so it says Jesus proclaimed these words and it talks about how the crowd was amazed said all the eyes were fastened. They were all fixated on him. And they marvel. And it actually says they testified. I know in English it says something like they spoke uh, well of him, but actually in Greek it's they testified about him. And then they asked this question. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then it all starts to unravel. And I had to ask, I mean, what... What was it about that question? Because just in and of itself, it seems like a pretty reasonable question, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? Seems innocuous to me. But then as I read Jesus, as I listen to the way he responds to it, I see uh, that, I mean, trusting him, that he saw what people weren't saying. You begin to see what was beneath their question. And Jesus says, you're going to quote to me this parable. Physician, heal yourself, which is a pretty common phrase at the time, which basically meant, like, fix yourself first. Saying, physician, heal yourself. All the things that you've done in Capernaum, do them here. And I think what Jesus was realizing, or that he knew in these people, is that they had the wrong idea about what kind of Messiah he was, what kind of king he was, what kind of savior he was. They had this idea that they had their life and that Messiah was going to come, fit neatly into their life, 
and help their life, their plans, their ideas work better and be more blessing. And so they started asking for the Messiah. They say, one, do these same things that you did in Capernaum, which isn't even your hometown. We can't wait to see what you're going to do here. You're going to make Nazareth great. Do it here. Do the amazing stuff here. So one, we get the benefit of that. But also, too, the other side of it is, I think, prove yourself, Jesus. We've heard of the amazing things you've done in this town that's not even your hometown, but you're in your hometown now. Prove, uh, prove to us who you are. Prove to us how great you are, how much you're going to bless us, how easy you're going to make life. Prove it to us. And so Jesus responds. He said, In the days of Elijah, there were lots of people who were starving. When the sky, basically there was a drought for three and a half years. He said, There was lots of people who were starving, lots of widows. And yet Elijah was sent to a widow in the area of Sidon. Which in, in that time, in, in Hebrew, or in Israel, that's like basically like God was sent to the other side of the tracks. <laughs> to the Gentiles, to the wrong, the wrong people. And yet this widow, she had oil and flour that lasted her through the whole famine. She never went hungry. He said the same thing, Elijah. You know, there were lots of people with leprosy in Israel at the time of Elijah. But God sent Naaman to, to Elisha and he was healed, a Syrian Another guy from the wrong side of the tracks, a Gentile. And after the people hear this, after they hear this, they go nuts. It says they're filled, absolutely filled with rage. And, they, and it, it says here they, they pushed Jesus out. What did it say? They drove him out. In the Greek it says they actually threw him out. <laughs> they threw him out of town. They led him over to the cliff and they wanted to throw him off. What has happened here? I mean, things were going so well. I mean, the things Jesus is saying, the people he's saying to it, saying it to, why are they, why are they not celebrating? Why are they not throwing like a parade? And yet instead they're getting ready to throw them out. In each of those stories that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, the one about Elijah and the widow and Elisha and Naaman, these were stories, they were, what was happening at the time was unfaithfulness. Israel had been unfaithful. The time of Elijah, they had an evil king, Ahab. He did horrible stuff. And so God shut up the heavens, and there was drought. What's happening here is that Israel, they were not being faithful to God, and so God was moving his blessing to bless others. And so Jesus is quoting this to the people around him, saying, I think he's saying, if you don't get this, there are people who will. And you see this a lot in Luke's gospel of Gentiles who get it, outsiders, people from the wrong side of the tracks, people who everyone else in their culture thought were a waste of time, they get it. They see who Jesus is. And the people, the insiders, like the, um, the Pharisees, the really religious, the people who were supposed to recognize the Messiah when he came, they're the ones who want to kill him. And I, like I said earlier, this passage is troubling for me. As I've been thinking about it this week, it's been hard for me. I spent a lot of time working through this. Because normally, like I said, when I read through it, I usually stop at the place, the good spot, where Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news. 
And I stopped there. But this week I've been reading, I've been listening to the second half as well. And it's troubling for me. It's troubling and it's challenging because it starts getting me asking, one, how did they miss it? And two, how do I not make the same mistake? Because Jesus is preaching in a synagogue. He's proclaiming the prophet Isaiah in a synagogue. Like it's the equivalent of his hometown church. The people who were supposed to get it. And yet they're the ones who respond wrong. Who don't understand. Who, as far as I can tell, who are spiritually blind. Jesus talked about that, that he came to give sight to the blind. You thought I forgot about that, didn't you? I didn't. (laughs) That Jesus came to give sight to the blind as well. And these people are, uh, the people in this congregation are an example of those who were spiritually blind. They couldn't see who Jesus was. They wouldn't see who he was. And it got me thinking, how do we, how do I, let me start there, how do I, even as a pastor in a church, how do I misunderstand Jesus still? How do I hear the way he is, the way he teaches, the things that he's called me to? How do I look at that and totally miss it? Do I? Are there places where I still try to take my uh, Canadian lifestyle, the way we live here in BC, do I still try and fit Jesus neatly into that? Is Jesus just a part of my life or is he the whole of my life? I think a common one that, that many Christians wrestle with, especially in North America, is we have our North American way of life. Oh, and Jesus is my Savior. So I know that I'll go to heaven someday when I die, but until then I pretty much live like everybody else around me. That Jesus is sort of a tack-on to our life, sort of a, something we sort of add on, almost like an insurance policy. You just add that on, and then I go on living like everybody else. I hear this passage challenging at least me in that. Hopefully some of you as well. <laughs> challenging us in that. That we hear him say, I am the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me as anointed me to proclaim good news. And rather than trying to figure out how can we fit Jesus neatly into our life, we start figuring out how can I get rid of that whole thing and begin following Jesus with my whole life. That everything is wrapped around him. that I've become more generous in a world that's not very generous, that i become more gracious in a society that doesn't really like grace, likes grace for me, but not really for, not that we give grace to anybody else. We become more gracious, to become more servant-oriented, that we serve people, especially the people who are the least, who everyone else discounts as throwaway, that we serve to become more and more like Jesus. That we don't make the same mistake that these people of the synagogue did. So this morning I'm hearing this passage and it's one, it's encouraging to me. Again, it's still my favorite. The first half is still my favorite. The second half is becoming one of my least favorites because it is so challenging. I don't want to make the same mistake. But this morning we hear that the, the Spirit of the Lord is on, is on Jesus. He has anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then we make sure that we don't get it wrong. 
that we hear that these things have been fulfilled in the scripture today, but that we respond the right way, that we respond to Jesus, that we want to make our lives fit him rather than getting upset with him because he doesn't fit into ours. And I was thinking about what could this look like in us? If some of us ask that question, or if all of us ask that question again this week, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, how have I misunderstood you? Show me the places where I have misunderstood how you want me to live differently. Imagine how that could begin to work out in this church family. If even a few of us realize that, oh, you know what? There's this part of my life where it's not consistent with following Jesus and I need to change it. Imagine how amazing that could be. Imagine the differences that could begin to show up. And I know that many of you, most of you actually, I look around, are doing your best to follow Jesus. So imagine what happens when we ask, Lord, please show me the places where I'm still misunderstanding you. And then he works in us and begins to change us. And we begin to follow Jesus even more faithfully.